big day today, Joe. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, big day. It's Tell time for the, it. it's the annual physical. <laughs> I get to go down there, get to look him in the eyes while he rubs my parts, looking for lumps. You know, and then I, I beg him for like you know blood work, and he just kind of looks at me and goes. It's not. It's impossible to have those kinds of appointments and not think of Fletch. Oh yeah, you know, using the whole fist doc. Right. <laughs> Actually, that reminds me. Speaking of that particular procedure in Fletch, so a few years ago when I went for my physical, <clears throat> because we were always told, and correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I got this confused somewhere in in the zeitgeist or something. Were we not told in our twenties that you got a colonoscopy when you were forty? Uh, I, I, or that you had your colon, like colon cancer screening by the, by 40 and over. I might've been an absent that day of class, but, uh, loser. I I knew it. I do believe that I, I I have never had one of those procedures. So no, I I haven't, but I I swear I heard all my life. It was just like once you turn. So I turned 40, you know, I'm all geared up, you know, I'm like, today's the day, you know, today's the day it's going to (laughs) happen. You know, go in, doctor goes, oh, no, no, you know, you wait till you're 50 now. I'm like, 50? I mean, Uh-oh. I could, I'm like, a lot can happen between 40 and 50. Like those, well, that's those, true. those LDLs, man, like <laughs> everything goes haywire in the male body between 40 and 50. Like we just, we, we put on weight, we lose hair, we gain hair. You know, it's 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 a crazy metabolic. It's a strange, it's a strange time. It, it it really is. And uh, for some reason, fifty seems to be the marker. Like once you turn fifty, it's like immediately the doctor's like, okay, well, we got a we got a round of about twenty five tests we need to run on you here. Uh, but have you seen the ads for this uh, new at home colonoscopy test? No. What? Like, well, well, I, I okay, so I haven't researched it enough, right? But they you have know, these. Were you they, were you under the influence of something and watching TV? Come no, on. no, I swear. There's this uh, um, colon guard or something. I can't forget what it's <laughs> called, but I, I'm not even sure how it works. But I turned to Dana and I was like, "So what? What? I gotta like poop at home and put it in like a little Ziploc and send it back like DNA one two three and." <laughs> And like, they're going to tell me if I have colon cancer or not. And there's like high probability of false positives and all this. There's, you know, on the, on the, on the side effects and stuff. And I, and I'm like, I don't know how I feel about that, but I mean, I guess it's helpful question mark. I mean, I guess people are doing, but I thought the whole point of it was that they have to kind of go look at your actual colon to determine, you know, that's again, there seems to be so many gray areas now. That that's so that brings me to my main question: Why do we even have physicals anymore? Because it seems like every year I go in for my physical, and it's just like, yeah, you're fine. Like you know, I'm just like, well, what, what? What does that mean? I'm an anxious person. I take anxiety medicine. I need to know things. Yeah. yeah. Get in there. Yeah. Root yeah, around a little yeah. bit. Find. I know something's wrong. I have, you know, I've had that, you know, love hate relationship with my physicality, you know, for most of my life. It's just like, oh, he's in great shape now. He's in shitty shape now. He's in great shape now. He's in shitty shape. Oh, what's that? Binge drinking. Like, you know, I'm really, I, I know, I know I abuse the vessel. 
So yeah. that's what I just want to like look at the doctor and go find something. Find yeah, something. Right. There's got to be something, right? Um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. Other than just like, you know, for doctors to just make money off of you mm-hmm. and to have like, you know, no, it's preventative. It's preventative. You know, you hear the, the prevent the, the prevention rhetoric. You know, comes right. out of those, right. those kinds of things. But uh, yeah. Some people do that. Some people don't. Jeff, you're probably being way more diligent about it than I am. I'm being I'm being way more paranoid than most people. Trust me. I got up at like 5 a.m. this morning. It was on my mind. Like it's not till like 2:30 this afternoon, but like all like it's all day. You know really? where I'm just like, oh yeah, I gotta go, I gotta go down there. You know, like I'll show up early. Like I'm taking an exam. You know, and just sit in the room. And, and I got that weird thought, like, you know, well, maybe if I sit here like a good, you know, and, and I'm taken in early, they'll, you know, do some more extra tests, you know, or something. And I'm just like, what? you were an educated man pushing 50. How the hell did I get these thoughts? Like, I, I don't I don't know where these come from. Well, it's not like you're, uh, you know, a hypochondriac where you're like worried that there's you know i got a tumor i know it you know i mean there, there are those people who are like right. you know got a pain in my left shoulder it's got to be cancer you know i mean that, that that's the that's the Ooh, storm's coming nope it's cancer like <laughs> there are people like that though right who, yeah oh yeah uh, <laughs> but it's not like that so it's just an anxiousness of I know something's wrong, so I got to figure out what it is. What do you mean there's nothing wrong? You got to find something wrong because I know there's something wrong, right? Because I know how I've treated my body over the years, right? Terribly. Yeah. <laughs> well. We are two lonely PhDs. I'm Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. He's Dr. Joseph Watson. On this show, we, uh, you know, sometimes we just like to uh, think about the world, think about things, but mainly we like to talk about film too. We like to raise these generational gaps and awareness These questions we want to we, we want to we want to broaden people's uh people's you know. perspective anyway we watched uh, two really interesting films this week uh dr watson watched the black phone directed by scott derrickson and i have a lot of questions because I, I i know that cat from uh, uh uh the first doctor strange movie but i really don't know that much about him and i'm sure you, you'll be able to illuminate some things uh i watched uh stone cold classic i'd never seen before the quatermass experiment 1955 directed by val guest so uh you want to go uh you want to go uh 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 present past or past present what do you want do to i do? hear five do i hear 10 do i hear 20 10, 10, um, 10 15 20 25 uh, <laughs> sure i can go first uh, okay. because i don't i don't know if i have as much uh in-depth stuff as i did last week um because black phone is just um well it's, an, so, it's i mean it just came out in june yeah so? it yeah. was released at theaters in june I, it's it's had a a really uh kind of interesting you know bloom house of course is behind it um because they own horror right now um <laughs> the disney of horror yes sponsor us bloom house but um the release date was pushed to the summer um so apparently it got done last year the movie got mm-hmm. completed last year but they had some some successful uh test runs for it the audiences really liked it and i think mm-hmm. Given the new Jeff, the new streaming models that we have, you know, is it going to go straight to the theaters and theaters only, mm-hmm. or is it going to be streaming and in theaters, or is it going to be just streaming? I mean, there's all these different marketing models now, and I think 
we're starting to see some of that kind of calm down and, and, and people are starting to figure out best case strategies for certain films. What do you know about it? I mean, the, the trailer is really. Yeah, I saw the trailer. Uh, I saw ads for it. I know Ethan Hawke is in it. I'm not sure to what capacity exactly Ethan Hawke's. And I guess he's the, the villain in this. In yeah, this yeah, he is. Um, so Derrickson uh, directed this. Um, he uh, Exorcism of Emily Rose. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Horror film from 2005 that I, um, first of all, I was like, wow, that movie was 2005. Um, yeah. Uh, but it was, it, you know, that was a good movie. That was the first movie that I discovered him. And then I went back and watched uh, Sinister, which was his other collaboration with mm-hmm. Ethan Hawke. Um, and uh, he also did the remake for The Day the Earth Stood Still in 2008. With the Keanu, Keanu Reeves one with Keanu Reeves. Yeah. Uh, right. yeah, yeah, right. So, uh, you know, it's a paycheck. So he's, but uh, the point is that, um, you know, Derrickson's been around for, you know, yeah. 20 years or so now. He's got a, a decent filmography. Uh, this particular story was written by Joe Hill, who is oh, Stephen, wow. Stephen, Stephen King's, King's son. Yeah. Um, this was a 2005 short story. So, uh, you know, the, the, some promising here, right? I was, the trailer was, um, you know, ambiguous, right? But I think pur- purposefully so. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't think they wanted to give you too much. So um, the, screw, let's see, the cinematography, Brett Jutkiewicz. I really hope I'm not horribly mispronouncing, <laughs> mispronouncing his, name. his name. Apologies. J-U- yeah, J-U-T-K-I-E-W-I-C-Z. Uh, Brett has also, we'll just call him Brett, right? How we'll about call that? him Brett. Uh, he's yeah. also worked on Stranger Things uh, as a okay. cinematographer and um, did the uh, latest Scream film, which looked pretty good. I bring the cinematography up because um, it, it kind of stood out for me. He had a great use of color. It's, it's, we're set in the 70s, mm-hmm. uh, Denver, 1978. So you got a lot of oranges and browns and there's mm-hmm. just a lot of 70s nostalgia in this, like... Is there, is there like go, go ahead yeah go ahead is there like a wash on it you know like in in grindhouse how he did that that color-coded like kind of grayish wash over everything not the not the horrible cigarette burns and scratches thing which just annoyed the hell out of me but I, like but i'm just talking about like the color you know just choosing that certain you know pattern to actually wash the film over yeah and it's it, it it's not grainy i mean there is mm-hmm. uh couple of like montages where there's you know static grain for like a Mm -hmm. second or two but it's not it's not uh, obtrusive like what you like what you're mentioning um but it kind of complements his overall production design i mean there's like striped baby t-shirts there's like ramones Mm -hmm. t-shirts flared jeans Mm -hmm. like vintage filters popsicles baseball games bicycle rides it's, it just gives you all the nostalgic feels if you were a kid, you know, in that era. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then, of course, littered in between uh, are, are all these missing children flyers, right? Uh, in the opening montage sequence, it's about two and a half minutes, but just sets up everything, you know, very, very well. So 1978 Denver, we meet uh, these two kids, uh, brother and sister Finn who's played by Mason Timms and Gwen, who's played by Madeline McGraw. Both of these child actors 
knocked it out the park. I mean, they're just oh. very, very good actors. They turned in very good performances. And they, you know, like you were mentioning, I'm not sure how much Ethan Hawke is in this. Uh, you know, the kids are really what drive the story, you know. Okay. Um, so they're so it's 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 kind of a I guess it was a it's a generic setup, I guess. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. you know, we're living in this um community and we're afraid uh for children's safety again children in peril but uh we're because they're being kidnapped you know multiple right, kids, right. all boys by the yeah. way no no females but all boys uh, and they're they're disappearing and they're not getting found and so eventually uh finn gets kidnapped by this man who's mm-hmm. uh posing he drives a black van uh oh the says, old van and it says yeah yeah it's that way and it says abracadabra on the oh, side supposed boy. to be this magician right for hire mm-hmm. and uh the community refers to him as the grabber um and so um, finn gets kidnapped by the grabber and gets stuck in his uh basement uh soundproof basement and there's this old black phone on the wall and um the first night that Finn is there being held captive, it rings. Hmm. And we quickly learn that um, the previous victims of the grabber mm-hmm. are calling him and giving him like advice or tips or, you know, um, assistance in how to break out. Hmm. So um, it's kind of, a, yeah, it's, it's an interesting setup. Are they alive? Uh, dead? Like? They're dead. Uh-huh. We, we don't fully know that until the end, but I, I mean, I, it's pretty, pretty obvious to me judging from, because you eventually start to see the apparitions of the former victims in the basement. Like Finn can't see them. He can only hear them, but we see them like, you know, standing in the corner where they, you know, probably met their demise or whatever. And so some of them are bloody. And so, so it's like, this mm-hmm. didn't end well, right. For them. So it's kind of got this semi paranormal, element to it uh, but it's really kind of a serial killer flick in a way Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah children in peril and it's it's another uh, situation where it's a child to child support system in this narrative right there are no helpful adults in fact Finn and Gwen's father is is an alcoholic abusive and we we actually Mm -hmm. get to see some of that at the very beginning of the movie it's quite um, raw and 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 disturbing um, so there aren't really any helpful. The kids have to take care of the kids, right? Uh, sure, sure. They're, they're the grownups, right? Right. Um, well, you can go do that on Friday night. I'll take care of dad, you know, that, that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Um, so we're dealing with, you know, the story really kind of subtextually is dealing with cycles of abuse and, and trauma, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the survival of such if possible. And it's really kind of a meditation on resilience, but let me, let me say this about this real quick, because okay. I don't want to, I don't want to, I think I've kind of got the story laid out, but let me, let me say this. So I read um, recently in a discussion about the horror film. It wasn't about this film per se. Mm -hmm. It was about something else, but the, the term that was used and I'd never heard this before. It was called complex in quotation marks horror. Hmm. And I was a little intrigued by that. I teach horror. I, I, you know, I know the genre pretty well, love it. Um, and, but I'd never heard that term before. Mm-hmm. So I looked it up and uh, it, it's, it's used to describe by, it's used by a younger generation to describe horror that kind of takes on a more intellectual or psychological dimension. Uh, and, and I'm figuring out that the more I read about this term, 
it has less to do with complexity and more to do with just style. I mean, it's, it's more of a, uh, I mean, we, we certainly have, have used the term intellectual horror and right. Right. No, no, I I know that. I I don't know if these kids today don't like that term intellectual. So they just want to say it's complex. I I, I don't know. Well, it's to me that they're the same thing. Well, I guess then my question is that a, who coined it uh, was this, was this, you know, new generation academics or, you know, and by, and by that I can, there, there's two camps on that, that I've, that I've discovered. Uh, one camp still has at least half a foot in traditional research writing and whatnot, while the other camp is now in, again, I'm not throwing shade here or anything. It's just, they're basically, it's just, they're videographers, you know, and, you know, uh, the film school rejects the guys on YouTube who like, you know, break down scenes and, you know, do all this. And they all do, by the way, they do great work. Yeah. Really yeah. great work. Like they, it's a passion project for sure. And I'm always very impressed by them. In fact, we use a lot of examples in our classes of them. I mean, they, yeah. they really do break them down. So, so which, I mean, is it, is it, what would you say, where is this terminology coming from? Yeah. I first read it on Letterboxd and, okay. um, you know, Letterboxd is for those who don't know, is just kind of an aggregate site where, anyone can really kind of set up film reviews and, and it's the Reddit of film. Like, yes. Yeah, that's yeah, a yeah. great example. That's a great way of, uh, of describing it. And so there's a lot of, you know, fodder there. Um, there's a lot of trash there, but there's a lot of decent stuff there as well. Um, I don't have an account there, although the students have, you know, kind of pushed me at times to be like, Oh, you should have a letterbox. No, 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 not really not really into that, but I don't mind reading some of the stuff or if they recommend, you know, what do you think this person about what this person said about this movie? I'll certainly read it. Um, and so I'm, I was just kind of casually reading uh, Letterboxd and um, I came across this term and it was just a user who used it. And then I looked it up and um, there were a couple of sources. I can put them in the discord yeah. where they, where they talked about it. Um, but they're not, they, they were not academic sources. They were right. more journalist, journalistic sources. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is that discrepancy, I think, where, you know, we, we kind of already have a term for the style that I think they're describing. Um, and it's not, it's really not, it doesn't have to be so complex. So you would, so then you're, you're saying that you, either you or these people would put the black phone in this particular. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I would call it intellectual horror. Uh, they would the younger generations seem to like the term complex horror. I like to see. Um, but I think I think they're the same thing. Um, it's it's not like the psychological dimensions of this movie were really difficult or complex mm-hmm. to understand. Right. Um, and so uh, but they were indeed intellectual. So, you know, you you do have to think <laughs> about what the you know, some of the connections are mm-hmm. uh, before you really kind of get a full sense of why the film is horrific or, or, or terrifying. Um, and sometimes kids, it's going to be more about what's in your head mm-hmm. than what you actually see um, right. on, uh, on screen. Um, but don't you think but that, this is an old argument with horror in general, like, and, and we'll also, when we transition into Quatermass, I'll get into it a little bit more too. Most horror done really well is intellectual because it's, it's again, just like science fiction it's dealing with some, it's it's its message is not going to hit you over the head you you it's going to be ingrained in there it's going to be ingrained in the entertainment like it it have small clues visual cues you know little things to pick up on 
you know, a little context here and there, you know, uh, but, but, you know, I have found that some of the, the smartest <laughs> films are, are, are in the horror genre because I mean, they're just, they, they know how to play with a concept really dig at it. And I, I just, I don't know. That's, I, and again, I, I don't necessarily have a, I, I'm not saying I have beef with the, with the label necessarily. I just think it's something that needs to be, if you're going to use such a label, you know, kind of think about some other, you know, broader things, you know, before you slap that label on it. Yeah. Well, it's, it's like, <laughs> maybe there's a term for this that's already in existence you know, instead of trying to, you know, invent the uh, new one, right. um, you know, but just kind of work your way into what's, you know, just enter the conversation, so to speak. Um, it's not like you've necessarily discovered something new. It mm-hmm. just may be that it's a different take on an old, you know, kind of model uh, or, or way of looking at things. But I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm in agreement with you, Jeff. I think horror, most, most horror, uh, is smart to a certain extent. Like it's asking the audience to have a, a more sophisticated discourse mm-hmm. with a film than, yeah. um, than maybe some of the more run of the mill kind of slasher stuff. But, mm-hmm. um, but I, I love horror and I'm, and I mean, I guess you could describe this one as a slow burn. I love that, mm-hmm. that term. That's a, another relatively new term uh, that people have been describing movies with. And I'm like, Okay, so that's a really euphemistic way of saying like it doesn't move very quickly. Like the pacing of the film is very slow. Mm-hmm. Uh, fair enough. Um, but I think movies like this one just take its characters and its world seriously. I mean, I think most intellectual horror does. It plants it in this kind of gritty realism that mm-hmm. is really, Jeff, more theatrical than it is cinematic in some ways because you know, you get the film boiled down to its core in the second and third act. And it's really all taking place in this one basement, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is much like a proscenium stage and, and, and you're relying on the performances <laughs> to really carry the intrigue, you know, along and, and not to, not to preempt you too much, but it really is like hammer, you know, the hammer mm-hmm. whorehouse style for a modern age. I mean, if we were in the 1960s, you wouldn't have Ethan Hawke. It would be Vincent Price or sure. for Lee or Peter Cushing, or one of these yeah. people would be cast as the grabber. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and at, at several points in the movie uh, in the background on TV, they have scenes from William Castle's the tingler. Oh boy. Playing on the, and the, they're looming in the background. So to me, those are all, you know, indices to sort of like understand like, okay, uh, this is the terrain of where this story is going to go. And this is kind of the style that they're playing off mm-hmm. of. And they're very self-conscious about it, you know, um, but there's nothing wrong with taking that approach. In fact, you just, it's more of like, this is what you're getting into folks. You know, this is what you're going to prepare yourself for. You know, there's mm-hmm. not going to be a lot of gore. There's not going to be a tremendous amount of violence, but you know, when there is, it's going to be very raw and rough. Mm-hmm. but it's going to be very strategically planted throughout the story. And most of it is more suspense building tension building, um, which I think they do extremely well. Now, the last thing I'll say, and that's really kind of all I have to say about it is Ethan Hawke. You know, if, if we're going to rely on performances 
to carry the intrigue, then mm-hmm. you better have a pretty big, you know, you better have your Christopher Lee or your Vincent Price. Yeah. And Ethan Hawke is not someone, Jeff, I don't think we would think of to be cast as something like this. And um, so I was quite curious as to how he was going to pull this off because um, it's just so against type for him, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I'm happy to report that he's very effective. Um, oh, wonderful. It, uh, he, he kind of, um, moves between a calm, almost kind of childlike, high-pitched voice, almost innocent in a way like, oh, you know, you can just, you can just eat your food and nothing's going to happen to you. You know, I mean, he has this kind of like innocent and then- Is it a Michael Jackson riff? <laughs> well, it's not quite that, that high-pitched, but I, but I do think that it's, it's supposed to be this kind of like calm uh Mm. innocent like nothing's gonna happen to you you know this kind of like thing which makes the turn for when he goes to the deep rage voice like all the creepier right Right, because he'll just he'll just instantly drop it and then as the movie goes on he gets more and more like well what do you think was gonna happen here you know i mean he 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 gets into more of the Mm. uh, of the of the split and i'm sure they play with the music like at those moments too yes like do they ever tip their hat or tip their hand with with the music cue to let kind of let the audience know what's for the jump scares yeah for the jump scares yeah the yeah. cues are there yeah. um but i think i think you know he the other thing too jeff that really about this performance that i was like how is he going to do this because in the trailer you see that he has these elaborate masks right the grabber wears these really strange masks uh all of which were designed by the fantastic tom savini like where would that still working yes where would that genre be without that dude um ex-vietnam vet (laughs) and a master 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 of makeup and performance and just look up tom savini we'll we'll get around to tom savini at some point i am i am sure down the road yeah 50 years of of brilliance um still working though and he has multiple designs for the mask so at sometimes all you can see is ethan hawk's mouth Hmm. um and then at other times um you uh you can see his his from the nose up but his mouth is distorted so the the mask kind of comes apart and he has multiple kinds of Hmm. masks and so ethan hawk really takes advantage i think of when the mask is on there's a lot of use of body language and in the close-ups they're really they're really focusing on his eyes like he's just just as an actor like when you're covered with all that stuff it's like how Hmm. am i gonna be creepy you know how am i gonna but he makes it work i mean it's Hmm. it's not humorous it's it's like oh this guy is weird like Mm. this is very strange um and this guy does not make me feel comfortable at all like i'm i'm a little terrified for this kid right um uh and 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 so so much of it just hinges on that on that performance and making that that performance work all the way through uh to the end and the and and the big reveals but he i i uh i enjoyed it i i think people who like this kind of horror will like it um Mm -hmm it is kind of evocative of that hammer style um from from the 50s and 60s and um i haven't seen enough bloomhouse films but i am curious about it because now it's he's cut such a pie out of 
the system, you know, and, and, and against all odds is sort of established this, this house, you know, as, as it were, I mean, they have, they even have the Halloween franchise, correct. With David Gordon green. Um, and, exorcist, and, and, is, exorcist is up next. Jeff. And the exorcist is up next. Uh, what, what do they have a style like a hammer, you know, hammer had a, had a house style. Uh, when it really hit its stride is, is there, I have, again, I, I'd have to watch more Bloomhouse films before I could make that sort of determination, but I'm just curious how many have you actually seen? And can you say that they have sort of a specific style? Gosh, yes. I've seen a lot. I mean, I would say probably 20 to 25 Bloomhouse films mm-hmm. that I've seen, maybe more. Um uh, I don't know if I can say there's a unifying style yet. I mean, I with Hammer, you know, it's definitely one of those um, one of those situations where if it's gothic and if it's set in a castle and if there are certain sets, then you know, you know, it's got it's probably Hammer uh, in in some way, mm-hmm. um, especially if it takes place in England. Um, but, or, or uh, very, or very colorful blood, right, right, right. <laughs> redder than red. Yes. Um, but I, 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 yeah, I'd have to think more on that. Like, mm-hmm. what's is, is there like overarching sort of like stylistic things? Mm-hmm. But yeah, he's done. I mean, we're talking 10, 15 years now, where Bloomhouse is slowly. I mean, I, I keep calling them the Disney of horror because mm-hmm. I, I think they are. They just they own all the franchises and they, you know, mm-hmm. they just they're the ones pumping it out. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. They do great work, but yeah, I don't, I, I'm not, I'm not sure about an overarching style yet. But I have to think about that. It's a good. That's a great question. Well, we are lonely PhDs. I am Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. He is Dr. Joseph Watson. Uh, we just got done discussing the Black Phone. A uh, new film from Scott Derrickson, uh, starring Ethan Hawke. Uh, and uh, up next, we're going to go back, back in time, uh, back to 1955. Uh, and actually a, a film that saved Hammer. When Hammer was uh, from Hammer, Hammer Horror, before it was Hammer Horror, it actually helped to establish, served as a foundation. And can probably be debated that it kicked off the whole British UK gothic horror film cycle from 55 onward, probably through 1970, uh, that, that, that Hammer would, would really become known, you know, even to this day that documentaries are made about and that books are written about. Uh, I watched uh, The Quatermass Experiment, uh, and it's got a couple different names, a couple different title labels. Uh, but, you know, I just, as I have it spelled out, I just have it as uh, experiment, E-X-P-I-R-E, you know, in the end. So uh, there, there are a couple of uh, different names for it. Okay. Um, <clears throat> the story is basically this. Okay. Three astronauts. They've been launched into space, board a rocket designed by Professor Quatermass. It crash lands in a field uh, with only one of its original crew, Victor Caroon, still aboard. Uh, after a while, he begins mutating into an alien organism, which, if it spawns, will engulf the Earth and destroy humanity. After Karun escapes from custody, Quatermass and Inspector Lomax, played by Jack Warner of Scotland Yard, have just hours to track him down to prevent a catastrophe. Um, you know, this story is really stripped down and simple, but it's the mechanics of it, Joey, the mechanics of it that make it uh, uh, so wonderful 
I did not know that it was based on a television program. <laughs> uh, but apparently, in doing my research for this week, uh, Quatermass as a TV program uh, was basically the first appointment television ever made in Britain. Like they, they, it was it was mass culturally popular. It was like based over six weeks, thirty minute episodes. Over, I can't, I don't have the dates of it, but I mean the the stuff that I read is just like basically like the pubs cleared out. And to clear out the pubs in England, people, if you've never been, that's that's quite a feat. Like it was this was like appointment television back in 1953, 1954. Just absolutely mind blowing. Um, it also serves as one of the earliest TV to film adaptations in the UK, uh, which, you know, we kind of skirt and talk a little bit. So far, we've only talked a little bit about adaptation. I know that that you have done a lot of adaptation scholarship. It's something that you you think about. Uh, and, and I do as well, because I'm just fascinated with the way things change, you know, from, from one medium to another, from, you know, and, and, and all of these things. And, and honestly, this apparently changed quite a bit. Um, uh, Nigel Neal, who was the creator of the Quatermass TV show, who actually invented the characters and wrote all the scripts, um, who had no interest in science fiction by his own record. He's just like, I have no interest in science fiction, you know, whatsoever. He basically wrote this, you know, uh, thinking again, as we were talking earlier about more intellectual concerns, like he was just thinking about how can I best package this, these ideas that I want to get out about, you know, social commentary and everything. I was just like, well, people on Saturday night want to be scared. You know, they want to be entertained. So let's put the, let's, use the uh you know the atomic monster uh, uh uh device that had been very popular in america i'm not sure it had been necessarily popular in the uk uh there in the 50s but of course the drive-ins in america in the 50s i mean that's just that's just become part of the zeitgeist of pop culture even now for america i mean you, the people think back to the 50s they think about people going to the drive-ins seeing a scary movie you know uh sci-fi movie things of of that uh nature an interesting note I came across, and again, I did not know this, was that uh, uh, John Carpenter loved Quatermass. Did not realize that. Had never picked up on those uh, Easter eggs, like big heart love, like loved it so much. He hired Nigel Neal to write Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. But after revisions happened, Neal was so disgusted, he sued them to take his name off the film. Yeah, it didn't go well. It didn't go. Do you know what yeah. that treatment was? Do you, did, um, was it close? I, I, from, from what I understand from my carpenter research, the only thing that was retained was kind of the idea of a celestial Halloween event where something was going to sort of massively control people's minds. Right. It ends up being the masks and, and Halloween three, but um. I could see uh, him doing the warlock thing. That, like that was, yeah, that was the only real, yeah. real piece uh, I think that was that was left. Uh, but um, yeah, Carpenter doesn't like to talk about that very much because oh, well, I'm uh, sure yeah, it was heartbreaking too. I'm like, yeah, I think like it you was, hire your hero, right? right. And it <laughs> doesn't know, and go the way you think it's going to go. It doesn't yeah. go the way you think it's going to go. And plus, I think at the time too, you know, Halloween three was the first time that we have a creator basically reject the studio's concept of what they think should be done, pitch something completely different, have the studio agree to it, and then still move forward with it. You know, because again, 
Carpenter said, I'm not doing Halloween is done. Michael Myers is done. Let's turn it into an anthology, you know, and, 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 and move forward from it, you know, from there. And I don't blame him at the time, you know, cause it was just like, yeah, why, why keep precise? But, but he saw the potential in the brand and he saw the potential in name recognition. And I, I like Halloween three. I, I don't, you know, I do. I, I, I have, there's problems with it, but man, there's some great parts about that movie. Listen, Halloween three is very underrated. It's, it's, um, it's, there's a lot about it that really works. It's basically invasion of the body snatchers just yeah. kind of reworked. Um, but, uh, but there's a lot about it. That's really creepy. And I have always applauded Carpenter for trying to, I mean, he never even wanted to make Halloween two. I mean, right. <laughs> these days, the franchise is, you know, so old at this point, mm-hmm. and there've been so many Halloween films. Um, you know, and, and people like me are always there, like buying a ticket on the on the on the first day. But, you know, Carpenter Carpenter is very clear about it. You know, he's like, hey, I think it's great. I appreciate the paycheck. Um, you know, it's very real, you know, yeah. very real about it. But, yeah, that that decision to make the turn and to say, well, let's make it an, a Halloween anthology series. Yeah, it's just fucking brilliant. You it know? was brilliant. It's way still ahead brilliant. Of its time, way yeah. ahead of its time. Right. And so, yeah, it was like, well, the audience is one, you know, they, they wanted Michael Myers. I was wrong. I shouldn't have, you know, I shouldn't have done that or whatever, but in hindsight, you know, some 30, some odd years later, we're looking at it going, that was pretty smart and ahead of its time. And so that's why I think Halloween three has garnered such a cult mm-hmm. kind of following um, since then. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Nigel Neal was, you know, and I, you could tell that he kind of wanted this, Quatermass kind of feel to Halloween mm-hmm. three. Um, and uh, it, I think, I think he got to do it better with uh, Prince of darkness, you know, a mm-hmm. few years later. Um, well, Carpenter, Nigel Neal had nothing to do with Prince of darkness. Let's just be clear Correct. about Correct. that, yeah. but he still loved him that much. Like he still carried it over into Prince. That's just a amazing love that, that uh, uh, Carpenter has for, for Nigel Neal, man. So basically Neil's television adaptation gets uh, uh, bought by Hammer and some American uh, production companies. Uh, and they give him a pass at the script. And they go, eh, I don't, you know, no, we don't think so. So they give it to uh, this writer named Richard Landau. And they hire director Val Guest, who had mainly done comedies. And again, another guy who had no interest in science fiction whatsoever. Uh, the screenplay attempt by Landau basically took three hours of television scripts and compressed it into about a 150-page script. Too long, okay? <laughs> too much, yep. too long. The budget for this film was less than any Hammer film had been, and that wasn't saying a whole lot. So it was just like... <laughs> even hammer was just like we we're gonna put nothing into this movie like what we're just this is going to be part of like double features and it's going to be a you know the first reeler going on you know because the movie's only i think seven eighty minutes maybe I, I if if i'm thinking about it i think it is i think it's 82 minutes but you know uh uh credit to val guest he got it down to to that 80 82 minute running time you know, and, and, and cut it and cut it and, and thought about it and thought about it. And, you know, it, it just required such a radical adaptation, 
you know, to, to make it work for what, what he wanted and, and what he wanted, what he began to see was, uh, and there's some really good, I'll see if I'll post the, uh, uh, the links, uh, in, um, the discord to some of the, uh, uh, scholarly writing I found, uh, on Google scholar, uh, about this film that when I was doing my research on it this week, um, he wanted the film to have a documentary feel to have the aesthetic of a factual film, right? Uh, sort of reminiscent of a newsreel, almost. And you have that in the opening. I, oh my God, the opening 15 minutes of this movie. First of all, the movie opens in a beautiful field in England and two young lovers on a summer night running down. And oh, <laughs> you know, they're going to get it on. And it's, it's just like, it kind of reminds me that it's like, it was so funny because I was thinking about the slasher paradigm, you know, paradigm where it's just like, you know, the young will be punished for impure thoughts. Yep. Well, the way the young is punished for impure thoughts in this instance is that something comes hurtling out of the sky. <laughs> and again, we don't have the, but he, we just see react like the, the actors going, Oh my God, something's coming out of the sky and a little bit of sound effects, you know, and then they run into this house and sky come in the house they come in and the thing crashes and we're on an inside set, you know, the things come tumbling down and they go out to investigate it. It's a gigantic rocket. Uh, and I got it again. He, he, he basically stages the next 10 or 12 minutes in this field. They built this amazing, uh, a forward facing rocket. Like I I'm pretty sure they're, you know, uh, I mean, this thing was full dimensions, man. Like it was, it, it had a little crappy door on it, you know, but I mean, it was probably, 12 13 14 feet high you know i mean it was it was a it was a big physical prop it's theatrical right? and very it's theatrical yeah. so he yeah. takes you know he takes a uh you know what i would assume is probably a wide angle lens puts the camera back and gives you depth right where there is no depth and in space where there isn't space existing right to, to give you the feeling of again that you're in a field and he mingles what would normally you can't do that with a, with a wide angle lens. You can't go newsreel, you know, but he pulls it off. Like he, 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 yeah. he you know, he, he, he dollies a lot. He pans a lot. The, the, as the ambulances come in and the, and, and uh, the policemen come in, you know, we keep going back to the gate, following them in eventually Quatermass makes his way in, you know, it's just this big, very theatrical set piece. And, yeah. and it's just very compelling and suspenseful and you don't know what's going to happen and uh uh, my wife asked me she said well is this is because she doesn't like scary movies she said is this a scary movie i said no 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 i said i said i can see how it scared the shit out of people in 1955 i said but when when did building suspense sort of go out of the vocabulary of of horror films you know what i mean like when 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 did that happen because we have a brilliant building of suspense. And, and by the way, he maintains that throughout the entire 82 minute run of this film. Suspense, suspense, suspense. Like it's, it's just a constant, just you're ready for it to burst. Uh, and eventually it does by the time they get to the church, you know, uh, uh, at, at, at the end. There's something about the Corman kind of methodology I think, you know, Roger Corman over in the United States was making kind of low budget horror. Um, when does that start? That's like 62, uh, 63, yeah, somewhere. Was, yeah. Like early sixties, late fifties. And Corman of course was 
influenced by what Hammer had been doing because they'd been churning out films that, you know, had made a profit. Mm-hmm. And so as a business model, in a way, I remember Corman just saying, you know, in one of his biographies, just saying, you know, well, we can use the sets from the terror and we can do the Mask of the Red Death and we can, you know, you, mm-hmm. you know, you get a couple of functional sets and you can make six films. At one point, he had like four films shooting at the same time using the same sets, you know, and it's just it's that's just insane to me. Right. Yeah. Um, but just constantly uh, churning stuff out. Um, and so I think that Hammer influenced their style, you know, that kind of theatrical style of the really nice practical sets um, and, and sort of cheating a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. uh, using the camera mechanics to sort of cheat the space and make you feel like you're in a much bigger environment, you know, than, than you actually are. Um, it, it gives it a scope, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, um, and it's, it's just trickery, but I mean, all filmmaking is, um, mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, they, they did it well. And even Jeff, even some of the, you know, like horror of Dracula um, with uh, Christopher Lee, um, you know, uh, those castles, you know, it's when I, when I I taught history of horror a few semesters back, I remember that in the hammer unit, I was like, okay, they basically had this one castle that was one of the production companies like it was a family like heirloom right and so this castle kind of became like home base right and like everything was shot like you know at or around uh this castle you know it was kind of like where their studios were um and uh and just this is just that was that cleverness of being able to just take the same location and use it for Mm -hmm. several different things um that became i think a really smart business model and so they were they were just doing a lot uh during that period but it was all driven jeff by by performances the same yes. is, is, is the same guy that plays quarter quartermass each time right no no it, actor, cha- does it change it changes and it's interesting because again nigel neal hated uh the uh the american actor uh uh who was hired to play quartermass <laughs> In fact, he 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 denounced sort of the sensing American- a pattern here about Nigel Neal. Nigel Neal, yeah, it's just like uh, the Americanization of Quatermass, you know, basically. And and Val Guest loved it. You know, he was just like, no, it's just like the character. We're going to play him like a stereotype, you know, because he's straightforward. He's no nonsense. Science is the way. You know, enough of this. Not you know, I mean, he's just literally like that. Like he's just the pounding the British. You know, and there's no explanation about why he's there. There's no explanation about. I mean, I we're we're basically dropped in medias reis, right? Into mm-hmm. the middle of Quatermass's experiment, which has gone terribly right. wrong. And he should be jailed for it, by the way. <laughs> like he should be. I mean, this is this is like mad scientist territory. We just, you know, right. it's just like, I will launch the rocket. Right. You know, and, and it's just like, but that never comes up, of course. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, but but I think it served mainly as a selling point to the American film distributors. Like it was going to be easier to sell this film with, with an American in the lead, you know, to, to in, in, in markets, you know, in the middle of America and, you know, and things like that, because, you know, people won't sit back and again, not throwing shade against anybody, We but let's be honest, you know, there's a lot of times where I've even had students say to me, it's just like, well, I would have watched it, but it's got subtitles or, you know, the, it's, it seems to be all British and I don't understand it. And I'm just like, right. okay, we got to work through this. We- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a struggle. 
it's 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 just a struggle but uh uh yeah uh, uh uh there's just so many in in the cinematography so beautiful on this film uh, i have posted the movie in full uh from the internet archive in our in our discord so if you want to watch it anyone wants to watch it please go there like just click on the link it'll take an internet archive uh whoever did the transfer for internet archive it's it's a beautiful version of it uh it's really really good um it's not fuzzy or or sounds not bad on it or uh, uh any of that nonsense if people want to get in on the conversation now you can go over to our discord uh we have a link to that in our show notes uh or you can email us lonelyphds at gmail.com uh for for all that info oh yes as always uh please subscribe and, and rate the show on apple google podbean wherever you get it from and by the way it's free you can subscribe to the show for free we don't have any subscription rates so uh, the best way sometimes we can know about how you feel about the show is looking at who's subscribing and how you're rating us in the comments that you're leaving so you know you're not going to hurt our feelings i promise you know we're not going to show up at your door not going to show up at your door not going to find your reddit thread not going to troll you uh you know i have a conversation that's all that's it i just want to have a conversation (laughs) i I just want to talk to you can i talk to you let's talk can we talk let's talk come on let's talk no, but seriously, you can just subscribe and rate to the show. That helps us out uh, to figure out, uh, you know, what's going on uh, with 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 our, our our listener base, and 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 also just we want to we want to interact with you. You know, come on, you know, reach out to us. Let us let us know. But uh, but you know, no pressure, no pressure. Uh, as always, thanks to Podbean for hosting us. Uh, until next time, I'm Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. I'm Dr. Joseph Watson, and we'll see you then.